1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, Kobus, apparently $60 billion doesn't get what it used to these days because in the aftermath of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit in Beijing that happened at the beginning of this month, I think the Chinese were expecting a lot more fanfare for the fact that they rolled out a huge, giant package of financial assistance for Africa. But the reaction has been a lot more mixed than I think that they were expecting. Even here in China, there was a lot more debate than they probably were expecting. In fact, on social media, a lot of the discussion about FOCAC was censored because there was a growing chorus of people who were saying, you know what, we shouldn't be sending all that much money over to Africa. We should be keeping it here. And that, I think, took the leadership off guard. But particularly in Kenya, there's been a remarkable series of events that have happened over the past, I would say, eight to 10 days since the FOCAC wrapped up. First, we had uh, the raid on CGTN's offices. Now, this was fascinating. Uh, Less than 24 hours after FOCAC happened, uh, Kenyan immigration authorities, in broad daylight, sent armed police into the offices of China's uh, main TV network that's headquartered in Nairobi and arrested five journalists on immigration violations. Um, That was remarkable. I don't even think Kenyatta was back in the country when that happened. Uh, They then apologized the next day, and then the following day, they went into the China Daily newspaper office and arrested or detained a journalist then. Then over the course of that week, there was this uh, horrifically racist video that came out from a young Chinese guy I actually didn't see the whole video. I started watching it and I just got fed up with it because, I'm, you know, uh, it was just so annoying to see how stupid he was. Uh, But the reaction was remarkable because things don't always happen that fast in Kenya. And this kid was deported very, very quickly. All of that kind of comes in the context that Uru Kenyatta went to Beijing expecting to get a massive loan for the second phase of the Standard Gauge Railway. And surprise, surprise, he didn't get it. He came back up empty-handed. So I was speaking with a journalist after Focac and who was asking me, is there a connection between these events in Nairobi on the immigration raids against Chinese government media and the fact that Kenyatta came back empty-handed and may have lost face and political standing for the fact that he didn't secure those loans? Now, let's just be very clear here. Kenyatta did get money. And a lot of it, a lot in the form of public-private partnerships, uh, he just didn't get one of his prized possessions in terms of that second phase of the standard gauge railway loan. So, Kobus, were you as surprised as I was about the reaction from the Kenyan media in particular, but in general across the continent, that there wasn't this sense of 50, 60 billion dollars is coming in for the next three years, which is still a whole hell of a lot of money, But people are much, much more concerned and skeptical now about what the effects of that money are going to be.
2: Yes, it was very clearly that clearly money doesn't buy you love. The moment FOCAC was over, it was was literally like pre-FOCAC, covering during FOCAC, just like recaps after FOCAC. And then almost the next day, it was this drumbeat about what about the debt? Um, And, you know, I've gotten a lot of, of... uh, of calls from journalists wanting to just talk debt, um, and you know some of it is is particularly related to African debt sustainability. Some of it is related to the whole debt book diplomacy narrative that we've seen developing over the last year. Um, and it's it's very interesting there's there's clearly a lot of concern in africa about this and then lots of different narratives about you know what china's agenda is you know with all of this financing so it's very interesting to see how the entire financing issue seems to be flipping you know kind of in a more negative direction to the extent that the chinese government even had to come out and defend the massive amounts of funding that they're giving to africa um yeah. so it's, that, it's that, very, that is very so interesting
1: odd. so let me read just to, you talked about the narrative Cobus. let me read you a few headlines from from kenya uh this is these are three headlines from the standard newspaper that came out over the past week uh, how china is feeding off poor africa Worry as China puts SGR funding on hold. Why Uru's China trip means more pain for Kenyans. Then the East African newspaper, they wrote a headline, China, a threat to Kenya's economy, new survey shows. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. That is, that is incredible. And it's incredible because this is a country eagerly loaning money. At the same time, we have to be very cognizant that the United States is pulling back. The Europeans certainly. I mean, Theresa May, when she came to uh, to South Africa and to Kenya, did not have a checkbook that she brought out from the United Kingdom. Uh, Angela Merkel was recently in Africa. She's not talking about uh, you know big investments. What they're talking about is putting up walls that they, they don't want more African migrants coming into Europe. Yeah. So uh, I'm just perplexed by this. So we thought, as part of our post-Focac. Uh, Digestion. We're trying to sort out what happened. Last week, we got the perspective of Luke Patey, who from an international scholarship point of view. uh, Next week, we're going to be talking to Kai Xue, who is going to give us a view from Beijing. And so we thought this week would be great to get a Kenyan perspective on this. We're not going to say that this is an African perspective, because I think there's a lot of variety in the responses. So we want to focus tonight on Kenya, in part because Kenya is where so much of the narrative is being shaped and driven, and boy, the the response is louder coming out of Nairobi than anywhere else in the world. So we thought the best person to talk to is our old friend Nsetse Ware, who's a development economist based in Nairobi, and she's also a columnist for the Kenya newspaper Business Daily Africa. A very good afternoon. Welcome back to the program, Nsetse. Thank you. It's great to be back. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I want you to help us sort out a lot of this that's that's been going on. It's been a very busy week since Kenyatta came back from Beijing. Uh, you, the timing of your uh, of you joining us on the program today is actually quite good because you just recently published a paper with the South African Institute of International Affairs, where Cobus works. Uh, Debt trap Chinese loans and Africa's development options. I know you have been a pretty vocal critic of the loans that the Kenyan administration is taking on from from China, and so I'd like to get your take on what happened at FOCAC. And the the reaction to it that we talked about in the Kenyan media and what is going on at this moment, particularly in Kenya, when people were celebrating the fact that the second phase of the standard gauge railway loans fell through. I mean, there was joy on Twitter about this, and that was very surprising to me. So I'd like to hear your, your kind of what your take is and what you're reading in the mood right now.
3: Well, I think it's interesting you're saying you're surprised, because I think if you've lived and worked in Kenya for a while, that response was actually anticipated. And I think this is this relationship between China and Kenya is really uh, almost a reflection of just how complex things are becoming as the relationship between China and Africa matures and, and evolves. The complexity is, is definitely growing. I think, first of all, let's just preface all of this with the fact that the debt trap diplomacy narrative had been being pushed out of European. Here in the North American capitals for quite a long time. Um, I think we saw this particularly earlier in the year. Uh, there were several uh, articles, whether you know, it's in Western in Western media, either American or or particularly uh, British media, um, really arguing that um, China is, is trapping Africa in debt, and and that's basically their argument is that they're luring poor African poor African countries into more debt. And I think I'd been on your show before, um, indicating that this is just part of a long narrative of xenophobic. Commentary that has defined the West's um, interpretation of Sino-African you know, relations. So the first version was, oh, they're going to become colonialists and imperialists. That xenophobic narrative then transitioned into, oh, China is just going to, you know, rape Africa dry of its natural resources. This was particularly during the commodities boom when African countries were really exporting quite a bit um, to China uh, because the global economy was doing quite well and China needed those natural resources. So that's what the narrative was at the time. Uh, But then as a commodities crash happened, um, the narrative now switched to, oh, debt trap diplomacy. So I think we need to understand that there are several things going on here. I think one, the xenophobic narrative has worked. Um, And it has worked in several ways, mainly by being the main point through which conversations about economic engagement between China and Kenya, China and Africa are being discussed. That is the dominant lens right now. So the narrative has managed to position itself in a very central way around how Uh, the relationship between China and Africa is is even referred to. I think that's one. I think the second issue with the debt trap uh, the the diplomacy is that from an African economic perspective, it's actually quite a frustrating and, in my view, very dangerous narrative. And it really reeks of hypocrisy when it comes to Europe and North America. And the reason I say that is that, in my view, the debt trap narrative really infantilizes African governments. It gives a perspective that China is pushing debt on Africa and it's tricking. Africa into debt and completely negates the agency and decision-making power of African governments, which is what I, I was alluding to in the document I just did for, for, for Saya. And I think that infantilization really um, is more rooted in the West trying to paint China as a bad guy, or particularly Europe and North America, you know, this sort of rivalry we've seen happening between them and China. They're really trying to uh, 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 paint China as an aggressive and dangerous entity that Africa should, should be aware Of and that motivation seems more rooted in the paranoia and fear they have of china and the growing power of china than any real and genuine concern of african populations because if you're hearing what african populations have been saying from the get-go is that we're concerned about debt period no matter who it's from okay and if you look at the debt book that the kenyan government has in terms of external debt um, the government actually owes more to the World Bank than it does to China, right? So if you look at the amount of debt, external debt uh, that Kenya owes to China, it's about 21, what, 21% of total external debt and about 70% of bilateral debt. Now there's been some deliberate or perhaps not deliberate, misquoting around the amount of debt Kenya owes China. I think that's that's just one thing is that confusing reports have been released as to that much. But if you look at the debt narrative in Kenya, I was one of the people who started with this two, three years ago saying our fiscal path is unsustainable china is just one of many players um, that kenya is racking up debt to and so one of the reasons we've been so concerned about debt is because of the fiscal accountability issues that have sort of defined the uhuru um, and the current administration is that we get all this debt it doesn't seem to be productive and each year we get into more and more debt and we're we're sequestering more and more of our revenue to, to repay these, repay this debt but don't forget we just floated a euro bond earlier this year, which was successfully subscribed. So I think one of the problems with the debt trap narrative is that it acts as though the appetite for debt is being pushed onto Africa and it fails to take the agency of African governments into account. And therefore the dangerous part is that it's beginning to absolve African governments of their responsibility. This is not China's problem. It is not China's job to give good deals to African governments. We have entire ministries that we pay for as African publics and their job is to look for good deals for us. So this notion that is sort of being pushed through this debt trap narrative is actually beginning to absolve Africans, African governments of the fact that are these deaths getting into really the best for the nations? And that's been a question for many of us for a very long time.
2: Thank you for saying that. You know, kind of the because it, it it feeds into this this wider narrative that African governments aren't really governments. You know that there's something else. They're not. they don't really doing the work of governments. And I think it's really important to point that out. I wonder if I could ask you a really very simple minded question. What you know, if, if if one thinks about back to to the. Um, that classic World Bank number that Africa needs to spend ninety-three billion dollars per year for—I'm not actually sure how long—to to kind of make up the infrastructure ten gap. Ten years. For ten years, one, tri- uh, $1
1: trillion dollars. Okay.
2: If one takes that into account, um, if you take a general—you know—it's it's difficult to, to generalize, but but if one if one takes a African country, what is more detrimental to growth and development: that lack of infrastructure or a big debt load?
3: I think it's a combination of both and i think that's been the concern that i've had for a very long time nobody disagrees with the fact that we've got an infrastructure deficit that's very clear and the negative effects of that have been studied very very much i think the concern i'm having is that are we financing the right infrastructure efficiently this is fundamentally the sgr front and center right when sgr figures came out and the government began to make it clear just how much they were spending on SGR, economists immediately, myself included, were like, hang on, this seems a bit excessive. And that is really one of the most dangerous evolutions that I've been seeing happening is because the world has bought the idea that Africa has an infrastructure deficit. So what I've been seeing African governments doing, at least the Kenyan government doing, is just sort of trying to throw money at the problem. I have said before, we need a fundamental infrastructure audit that assesses all the infrastructure projects um, that we've gone through, at least through the past five to 10 years. Are they Were they efficiently financed? were they overpriced, are they economically productive? Because that infrastructure uh, multiplier argument is so strong that the rationale that African governments give to get financing for infrastructure has already been made for them. And so the concern I'm having is that, yes, they may be building infrastructure, but are we overpaying for it? Is this the infrastructure we need at the right time? And is the money being efficiently used? If you look at the SGR case, one of the biggest concerns we've seen coming out of Kenya is that there was a, seems to be have been a lot misappropriation of funds particularly in the land and the land allocations and the purchase of land etc there's just been a lot of questions around that so the issue from kenyan just let me make it clear it's not that we don't want the sgr it's not that we don't want infrastructure is that we don't want to get into debt on infrastructure projects that were poorly thought out or deliberately overpriced for financial mismanagement reasons. Um, And then we're paying for an infrastructure that, that, that won't really deliver. And I think just to finish this point quickly, one of the other very dangerous things about the debt trap narrative is that it's actually beginning to term corruption and making it look like incompetence. And this is where the hypocrisy of, I think, Europe and North America really comes out. Because on one hand, with the narrative, they say, oh, Africa is pushing debt, Uh, oh, China is pushing debt on Africa, poor Africa, we need to watch out. On the other hand, they have this other narrative, which is about, frankly, lecturing African governments about uh, corruption and human rights and governance issues. If they're pushing the debt trap narrative, they're giving African governments a window through which they can say, actually, you know, you're right, China pushed debt on us, let us not be held accountable for all this money we get into. So what is the West really doing? Do they seek to hold African governments accountable? If the answer is yes, then from the beginning, the negotiations that African governments have been making with China and others were done with the same competence, right? One of the things that I'm seeing creep in is that somehow when Kenya is negotiating with France, there's some credibility and it's competent. But when it comes to China, it isn't. And I think this now moves into the next phase, which is the fiscal opacity. And I think that's the real crux of what's going on here, is that deals between China and Africa are just not clear, and African governments enjoy that fiscal opacity.
0: Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars.
1: I don't expect to see any transparency coming from the Chinese side anytime soon. And I can't imagine that any African government, including... Those folks in Nairobi have any incentive to be transparent? So it seems like that will be a long, long time before we get the the kind of transparency that would make you happy, and certainly a lot of people on the outside happy. Because you know that's the Warren Buffett when the, his saying is that when the uh, when the tide pulls back, we get to see who's wearing uh, swimsuits. And uh, I think that would that's going to be it would be quite revealing to see where all that money goes. Let me let me you you brought up a point, and this is one of the main criticisms of the SGR. It was brought up by Howard French. It's brought up by a lot of African critics, uh, and particularly in Kenya, that Kenyans paid way too much for it. And that may be the case. That absolutely may be the case, and that, that probably is the case. But isn't that the consequence of being effectively a poor country? I mean, let me just kind of frame it this way, that when you, when you live in poor communities in the United States and you have to pay payday lenders to cash checks and get microloans, you pay exorbitant interest rates. And that's simply because you don't have the leverage. And I say this only because we are on the cusp right now of an emerging market financial crisis. We're already starting to see places like Turkey and Argentina starting to struggle with their debt. We're starting to see this, you know, even the RAND in South Africa is under pressure. More money is fleeing out of emerging markets. And I think that African economies are going to get killed by what's coming up in the next six to nine months And already uh, several uh, uh, bond issues from emerging markets have failed simply because there's just nobody who wants to buy African debt. So I guess my question here is, you know, okay, the Chinese aren't, you know, a lot of people don't want the Chinese to loan too much money. Where does the money come from? If it's not China, it ain't coming from the World Bank. It ain't coming from the Americans. It's not coming from the Europeans. Where does it come from to fund these critical critical infrastructure projects if it doesn't come from the Chinese? By the way, the Japanese who used to be one of the largest lenders in Africa, are now shifting their aid programs and their development programs away from Africa and into Asia, where they want to challenge the Chinese and the Asian infrastructure investment bank so let's just be kind of upfront here and I'm not challenging you on this per se, but I'm challenging the critics. Africa is not as popular in the international financial scene as I think a lot of people think it is, and what happens if the Chinese say, you know what? Pfft, forget it. We're off. Let's go to the Belt and Road. We'll go to South America. We'll go to the Middle East. And the, and, and the funding dries up.
3: And I think, I think this is exactly one of the reasons why um, the object of Chinese credit uh, was so aggressive by African governments. First of all, I think one thing we need to do is not overstate it. Overstate uh, the Chinese lending to Kenya in particular. We're still being loaned to by the World Bank. The African Development Bank has a fairly large program in infrastructure in Kenya as well. So I think there's also been some understatement of engagement, particularly from, for multilateral organizations around their compi- commitments to finance African infrastructure in particular. But I think this is almost and you'll probably find there's a, there'll be a certain level of jubilance, as you saw in the SGR, that the taps are drying because we've been singing the song of austerity for a very long time and and we just seem to be it seems to be falling on deaf ears now the fundamental problem going forward is that we've already accrued debt uh we've already started to plan uh for new infrastructure projects. well the african governments or the Kenyan government has already started to plan for new infrastructure projects going forward i think what will have to happen if as and when um the chaps from china uh, china do begin to run dry is just a fundamental prioritization of the projects, and quite frankly, a lot more scrutiny on every deal that's going to be uh, presented. And for me, that is welcome. Well,
2: yeah, I mean, you know, more scrutiny. I I, I agree with you. It's it's very welcome. Um, you know, for example, like one of the big loans that that um, came to South Africa from China recently, just just before FOCAC, is a, is a is a massive loan um, to build a new power station, but it's. A coal-powered power station, and it's you know the money is going to a famously troubled, um, semi-state-owned, you know, company which is which is notoriously corrupt, and you know South Africa is a much larger emitter of of, of greenhouse gases per um, per capita than its economy shows. You know, it's, it's it emits more than its economic strength um, would would suggest. Um, and so it's just this outrageous decision, um, you know, that doesn't make sense in any in any kind of way. Considering that South Africa has almost you know, uh, you know, parts of South Africa almost had never is never cloudy. You know, it's it's the paradise, potential paradise for solar energy. And if you wanted to to get solar energy, China is the people you'd speak to. You know, so so there's no public interrogation of why we are taking this massive Chinese loan to build this ancient technology. Which is going to kill future generations? It's just outrageous to me. Um, but the opacity of the decision making shields the government from this from this kind of public inquiry. Um, and do you think that is there a way to get greater transparency in the in the you know from the African side from their own governments about the the, the terms of these deals?
3: Well, you know, this is interesting because I think as 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 uh, Eric and you said before, I think that's going to be very difficult. But this is actually, in my view, an opportunity. I think one of the biggest problems I've had with China and the Chinese government engagement is that it has been just government to government, and it has been just a heck of a lot of debt. We haven't seen a lot of FDI coming into, uh, or FDI-like financing, coming into the African private sector from the Chinese. And I think this has been one of their weakest points of engagement in Africa, is that they have essentially ignored our private sector. Um, And I think if the appetite of loaning to African governments is going down. The opposite of what's happening in terms of Chinese private sector is actually quite aggressively coming into Africa, um, financing African private sector, and um, setting up businesses that function as private sector entities in the African continent. So you may find, and I think this would be a great opportunity, that rather than saddling all of their money on government-to-government interactions that are fiscally opaque, that are getting a lot of resistance from African populations, I think the opportunity is now for a fundamental switch in financing strategy and really taking the African private sector a lot more seriously. And I think using that channel, you'll find that the money is probably used more efficiently and may um, generate more returns, and therefore deal with this sort of negative brand China that's that's beginning to emerge in terms of Sino-African relations. And I think this has been the problem with China's strategy from the beginning is that it's been so government heavy, and there's often been almost uh, an, uh, uh, an assumption that if we do well by African governments, then we are doing well by the African people. And I think the SGR is a very clear indication that that is not the case. The government can like you, the government can want your money, but it does not mean that the people are behind what's going on between the two governments. So I think this sort of uh, lack of uh, excitement around financing African governments is really an opportunity for the private sector to step in.
1: I don't know, I mean, I get your point where you're coming from, but the problem here is that from the Chinese side, they don't have any experience in dealing with civil society. They don't really have a lot of experience dealing with private sector in you know these PPP public-private partnerships. That's not a model that the Chinese do very well. To be honest with you, it's not a model that the West does very well either. They talk about PPPs all the time. I don't know. Maybe you can give me a good example of one that's worked well. I, I don't know one, and, I'll, and folks, if you're listening and you have a good example, please share it with me because I have yet to see one. But it's something that the U.S. talks up quite a bit because it really is that ideal middle ground between government and private sector. And Kobus and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago with regards – there was some incident in Kenya. Uh, Oh, on the SGR and the abuse by by Chinese managers of local workers. And it was interesting to watch the Chinese reaction to this because I thought, wow, this is going to be a big turning point. This is bad. I mean the optics of this look terrible. And then Kobus pointed out – and correct me if I'm wrong here that, Kobus, you said, yeah – I don't think they're going to care. And because at the end of the day, Chinese deal from elite to elite. And what what did they do? They shifted the burden to the Kenyan Railway Administration. They said, this is your problem, not our problem. So I'm not so sure that the Chinese actually at the end of the day care if people don't like them. I don't think all this stuff on Twitter and Facebook and the anti-Chinese and the Sinophobic... Uh, you know, rise in in anti-China kind of memes that are coming up out of Kenya really resonate with the Chinese leadership. They are very, very well accustomed to receiving criticism uh, from the West, from Japan, from pretty much everyone. So you know what? Take a number.
3: But but I don't think you know, it's, there's a
1: long line of people who want to criticize the Chinese. I don't think it's the and,
3: criticism, though. I don't think what's going to drive and shift Chinese strategy in Africa is the criticism. What is going to shift is that they're beginning to see that they may have been pouring their money down a black hole. They're beginning to realize that perhaps all this debt, which is why we're already... Uh, they're already talking about um, absolving debt and, and and canceling debt. They're beginning to realize that all the debt that they were lending to African governments perhaps is not working the way they thought it would have. I completely agree with you on the criticism thing. But I do feel that from a financial and in, in economics point of view, from a fiscal prudence point of view, from an economic strategy point of view, that is where the Chinese are coming from in the African uh, government sense. They are not coming from a popularity context. I think you are
1: 100 percent right. And I think – and when we speak to Kai Shia next week, who's, who's been a very, very vocal critic of financing more debt to China uh, – to, to Africa, he's part of the, 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 the vocal minority here who is advocating to shut it all down. Africa is not worth the investment anymore. The ROI on that money for the, for the Chinese is nothing. They can make much better returns in the Middle East. They make in Southeast Asia and now in South America. Africa is a black hole for debt for them. Now, but here's the point, here's the point. and Kobus, let me get your take on this. For the Chinese, we're talking $50 billion. A lot of that's coming back to China in the form of contracts for contractors to build out that stuff. So it's really not a net loss and a net loan of $50 billion. Really, at the end of the day, of the FOCAC package, about 10 to 15 is in 10 to 15 billion dollars are in grants and interest-free loans. So the marginal exposure and the risk for them is quite small. But as we've seen... Uh, what they want to do, they're expanding their military presence, their political presence, the diplomatic presence, environmentally they're doing things. The agenda in Africa is much broader than just trade and investment and economics. China's ambitions now are using Africa as a wedge against the United States. It's building coalitions in the in the global south. So maybe ten to fifteen billion dollars of bad debt is a price to pay for China to emerge as a global power. Cobus does does is this just maybe the cost of doing business for the world's second largest economy?
2: It might be, um, but I, I, um, I think there might be a few different different factors at play, and including a few different internal factors within within the Chinese government, because. Um, I don't think that necessarily we we going to see lending completely dry up, but I wonder if it isn't a, a kind of a crossing the river by feeling the stones situation where they kind of moved into lending to Africa, you know, in in, a, in during years when when many other kind of rich nations didn't want to, um, and then now they're encountering a few a few kind of setbacks um, and and potential problems and. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, it's it's interesting to keep in mind the the Chinese reaction about the SGR, which is that they didn't like shut down the SGR. They simply said they're gonna they're gonna do a review of the entire the entire project, the entire you know kind of cross border original design of of the of the SGR and and how much it's gonna cost, which might well be code for we're shutting it down. But it's you know they they. You know, it might also be simply the, the dawn of a new approach, a new debt approach. And when, when the last time I was in Beijing, I, I spoke to some officials, and they also highlighted that they feel that China faces, you know, they, they, faces, they face a financial setback, obviously, if there's default, but they also face a lot of reputational setbacks. Um, and that they so they felt that they don't want to stop lending but they want to lend a lot more carefully and they want to in, implement a lot more sustainability studies and feasibility studies beforehand and that could be great news I mean more you know a, a kind of a more hard-nosed approach to lending to Africa and you know foregrounding sustainability if that is actually what is going to happen and if that's not just code for or a software of saying they're stopping lending it, but, um, but that, on that point' that, that Kind of, but let yeah, me go ahead. On,
1: on that point. I think that's actually more of a consequence of domestic political pressure here in China than it is yes. for any type of good governance in Africa, because yes. the economy here is slowing. They're in you know in the beginning stages of a massive trade war with the United States, and there's concern here. And so maybe that discipline is coming from domestic politics rather than any altruism on how to reevaluate their their debt deals abroad. Just a thought.
2: Yeah, no, I, com- I completely agree, um, and and I think generally with you know, free, you know one of the truisms of, of of looking at China internationally is that one always needs to keep the domestic situation in mind because that shapes the international approach, and you know th- it might be doing that in this case, and it, but it might be doing it too in, in a way that that could actually improve Chinese lending to Africa in in, in the long run, um, in the sense of you know you know once once those feasibility studies are done then that's a step closer to having them more accessible to the public. It's, it, it, it is potentially a step to, you know, to, to open more debate about particular projects. Um, and that's it. do you share that that view?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is interesting. I think the domestic pressure is there, but I think also the pressure from Africa is there. And why perhaps perhaps, Eric, you're a bit more cynical than I am, but after that you know that I talk a lot with a lot of these Chinese journalists that are based in Kenya and cover the region, And they always send me messages when they get uh, a particularly negative story that's coming out of international media or uh, national media around how China is being branded. So I think there is, in my view, not this sort of, Uh, previous attitude of that they don't care, maybe from a government point of view, but I think in terms of the whole game China is doing in trying to build soft power on the continent, which is why, in my view, they are willing to lose some money because they're getting geopolitical influence, because they're getting geopolitical access, because Um, uh, For a long time, Africans were quite positive and uh, receptive to China and what China was doing. So I do still feel that there is a very important soft power game that they're playing and that they are a lot more sensitive to their reputation. And if I just look at how their journalists respond and are really very aware about the branding and positioning of China as a government, I think that's important. I think the other part of the story around sort of a contraction of lending um, into Africa, I think, is part of what you guys have alluded to, which is sort of a reassessment of what is the smartest way forward? What is the best way to, number one, uh, make China look good and make sure China gets its uh, reputational dividends for investment in Africa? But I think also, number two, they actually, there is growing narrative and a growing sense in the international community that Africa just has to do better in terms of economic uh, growth and performance. And that's why when you look at May's um, opposition to Kenya when you look at what Merkel was talking about when she came to to Africa I think people finally get it that the best way to stop immigration the best way to stop having to lend Africa all these millions is to actually be very strategic in what you finance and to take the African private sector a lot more seriously and that's why it'll be really interesting interesting to see uh, the type of financing that comes out of the May and Merkel uh, visits that were that were in here uh, we already saw um, with the U.S. Um, after uh, Mahuru went to visit Trump a few weeks ago. We saw some interest in private sector financing um, from the U.S. Um, investment arm. So I think the world is slowly beginning to understand that really there, is a, there should be a genuine separation between financing African governments and thinking that that will lead to prosperity while neglecting the private sector that actually feeds and employs millions and millions of Africans. And I think that's what I was saying in the beginning, is that the sort of credibility problem that African governments are getting into through the Chinese example is really in my view creating space for the for the african private sector to be taken a bit more seriously and i'm not alluding necessarily to ppps okay i don't think kenya is good at ppps i think we don't really have uh, uh, the capacity to execute them very well. I think we're working on it, but I think we're still quite young in the game, especially in, in certain sectors like housing and water and sanitation. But I do think that there are private sector entities uh, that are financed by private equity, by banks, venture capital, um, that, that are quite robust and I think um, could be an alternative to sort of solve the Africa development problem that that so many people talk about.
1: Yeah, I think you're right that there are Factions and parts of the Chinese government that are very, very concerned about uh, their image. They spend billions of dollars on building soft power. Unfortunately, they're actually not very good at it. Um, They have a great message coming out of FOCAC that they buried. That on the official announcement of how much money they were going to give was a debt relief program. They said they were going to forgive the debt, but they buried it. They didn't actually specify who was going to get debt forgiveness or debt relief or rescheduling. And to me, given all of the criticism as a marketer and a communications professional, that would have been my lead in some respects. Yes, we're going to continue financing, but at the same time, we're also going to now make this sustainable development. We're going to relax the debt. In the past seven to ten days since FOCAC, Botswana has seen debt forgiveness. Uh, Ethiopia had its debt rescheduled out to 30 years these are good stories because it shows that China's listening. And as you pointed out, it shows that they actually do care and they are sensitive. One of the things that we should be watching is where and how China's behaving in other parts of the world. So everybody brings up Habandota, the port in Sri Lanka, as an example. That's a terrible example. We've talked about that many times on the show. I think that when people use that as the kind of shining example of Chinese neocolonialism around the world, it's complete garbage. Listen to our previous shows. I won't go into it now. Venezuela is a very good example of this, where the Chinese have not called in their debts. In fact, they just extended another $250 million loan to, uh, for oil development to keep the oil companies alive there, the Venezuelan oil companies. Um, so one of the things that we don't know about what the Chinese are doing in Africa is, are they going to call these loans in? So if Kenya comes up and says, we can't pay our loans, or if the meme that's starting to take hold right now, I was starting to see, and this is my question for you now, the the Treasury Ministry announced that there's a 16% fuel tax that they're sticking to and they're going to be committed to, which is causing significant pain on on drivers and the average person in Kenya. And some people are saying the tax is there because we're spending so much interest now to pay back the Chinese. Now that is a horrific meme for the Chinese.
3: Yeah, but you I see, mean that is
1: you know but but this is a
3: problem eric it is being positioned like a chinese problem this is not a chinese problem and that's what i've been saying this whole debt trap narrative is actually a very dangerous narrative because it is shifting focus from the people who are responsible, which is the Kenyan government, the African government. Let us not absolve them. These guys have been doing deals. If you look at the vetting process you have to go through to become a cabinet secretary of treasury in this country, you'll begin to understand the caliber of people that have been made responsible for these dockets in many African governments. So I think one of the problems I'm having is that people are really buying into a very shallow and dangerous narrative that is making African debt, of which in Kenya, China owns only 21%. Of external debt. Let's not even talk about domestic debt, okay? We're making the debt problem in Kenya and Africa a Chinese problem. It's not the Chinese problem, it's 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 a Kenyan problem. And I think one of the reasons, if we talk about the 16% VAT that you're talking about, the reasons why African and Kenyans are so uh, upset about it is because we're asking what do we get in return? And this has been the fundamental question of every single debt we get into. It was the same thing when the Euro bond was being floated. What is gonna what's going to happen to all all this money? How much of this money are we actually going to see as Kenyans? How much of this money will be diverted to foreign pockets? So when you look at any deal that is announced by governments around, we're looking for debt, it is the same question. How will it help us? It is just that that uh, xenophobic narrative has been so well positioned that this is, this is becoming a China problem, and it really isn't
2: and so what what do you make of the the asset seizure narrative that goes with the debt trap diplomacy narrative the one the idea that that China is either planning to or will end up anyway taking over african assets if you know if there's a, a the the potential of a default and there's this week we've seen a lot of this being being thrown around um, in relation to zambia you know kind of all a whole bunch of of different zambian assets state assets have been Declared by different journalists as, as either be you know in the process of being taken over will soon be taken over that has already been taken over and then meanwhile the Zambian government is, is pushing back and saying like you know some of these loans have not even you know the the the, the repayment isn't even due yet you know the, the, the you know, they've been trying to kind of to to fight this fire but but there's a very strong kind of drumbeat um, you know in the African press about certain Zambian assets being taken over by Chinese entities yeah
3: and I've been interesting i think there are three responses to that i think number one europe and north america have far better ties with african media than china does number one so getting a narrative into african media from a certain perspective is much easier the chinese have i don't think they're very good at um using locals to tell their story i think europe and north america media and and foreign governments are a lot better at that i think that's just number one so a lot of the reporting that's going to come out of kenya in particular it's probably not going to be informed from a Chinese perspective. It's going to be informed from a debt narrative perspective because the connection is just better there. I think number two, it is far too early in the game to say how China is going to behave when Africa starts defaulting. But the narrative is going to make it look like, oh, they're going to seize all your assets, which leads to the third point. I think the Chinese government is very sensitive to the fact that Europe and North America in particular are anticipating asset seizure so that they can cha- they can really, really paint China as the bad guy. And I think that is precisely why they've dropped in that debt cancellation note in the FOCAC announcements. It's just to let people know, hey, listen, this narrative around us seizing things and all of this, we are actually quite sensitive and aware that this is how we're being painted and take a look we're already indicating that we're going to absolve some of these loans so i think number one china is a lot smarter the chinese government is a lot more aware of how they're being branded i think number two uh, europe and north america are a lot better at getting local media to tell their story Um, and i think number three it's just too early in the game to know what china is actually going to do so this then breeds ground for for hypothetical scenarios to emerge and a lot of that is done through what through media, which uh, China is not very good at uh, getting on its side.
1: Yeah, let's. I don't want to end our program on a down note because this has been somewhat of a downer show. And you know, <laughs> it's a
3: little bit kind <laughs> I, of depressing. I'll was, I was try to make it. It's not a downer show. I know. I think I, to I, say, I took hey, the cynical pill here tonight. There's opportunity I, in private I, sector. Like this is yes. now the chance. Like for me, there is yes. a lot of opportunity.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely took the cynical pill tonight. But uh, but in your paper that you that you wrote for Saya for the South African Institute of International Affairs, in which we have a link in the show notes here, and it'll be on our website, and uh, I put it up on LinkedIn already. On Twitter, so we'll get that paper out there a little bit Thank more. You. But In that paper, you have—it's our pleasure—you uh, have four recommendations at the end for your conclusions. If you remember all four of them, that would be great. If you can give us a summary of what your your counsel is to either President Kenyatta or his ministers, who you don't hold in high esteem, uh, well, but somebody I don't who's hold listening, them in high
3: esteem, I just think they could do a lot better. That's that's all I'm saying. Fair
1: enough. So now l- this is your chance. Who knows? Kobus, do you think Kenyan ministers are listening to the program?
2: Who knows, baby? I'm <laughs> hoping now.
1: <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's assume <laughs> that if a Kenyan minister is listening to the program, here are your four recommendations for what you think they should do.
3: Well, well I don't know if I'll do them in order because I, I don't have the document right in front of me. But I think for me, they're, they're really two bi- three big things. Uh, that they need to, uh, that in my view are very important. I think number one, be a lot more careful in infrastructure financing. Make sure that the infrastructure that's being financed by China or anywhere else has concrete benefits for the Kenyan people. I think this idea of continuing to throw money at the problem is one that has already seeded a lot of frustration in in the Kenyan population. And I think going forward, uh, there needs to be a lot more thorough and rigorous assessment around why we're financing infrastructure and what we're going to do. So I think that's one. I think, number two, there needs to be a lot more transparency in the terms of the agreements. And this is both for the Chinese, but more so for the Kenyan government. If you have seen over the past few months, the President Kenyatta has really been going on an anti-corruption drive. He's really been pushing uh, uh, the relevant relevant government departments and agencies to start holding uh, public officials to account for corruption allegations. So I think in the broader context of Fiscal transparency and sort of this anti-corruption drive. It is in the interest of the African governments and the Kenyan government to be a lot more transparent about the terms, um, and therefore, you know, uh, allowing some of that cynicism and some of that um, speculation of how money was actually spent and was it stolen, was it not stolen, and really tarnishing the image of the Kenyan government. It is in their interest uh, to be more transparent. Um, and I think finally, just, just how do we? My real, my big concern outside China is how are we going to manage our debt appetite? And I think you guys started alluding to that when you're saying, are China's taps running dry? And that has been my question, is that we are acting as though our debt appetite will be met infinitely going forward. And that is simply not the case. So for me as an economist, can you present a clear breakdown of uh, the national debt that we have, how it will be managed responsibly, and more importantly, how we're going to manage the debt appetite going forward? When will we see it tapering off and how will that tapering off be affected?
1: The article is Debt Trap Chinese Loans and Africa's Development Options. It's a paper produced in partnership with the South African Institute of International Affairs. Again, if you want to get your head around the complexity of this issue and stop listening to Twitter and Facebook and all the shouting and the yelling, everybody's got a solution in 160, 260 characters. This complex issue requires a lot more than 260 characters to understand. So I I kind of urge you to tune out Twitter, including myself on this, and then start reading more of what people like Nsetse are writing because it's a very, very complex answer. There are no rights or wrongs. It's a whole bunch, depending on where you come from on this issue. And uh, the paper is truly, truly excellent. So congratulations on the paper. Um, we would like to, if people want to follow where you are, what you're doing these days and what you're reading, and what you're writing, what's the best way for them to stay in touch and if they want to reach out to you?
3: I think um, you can find me on Twitter is the easiest. It's Anzetsa, a n z e That is my handle. Um, and I think that's the easiest way. I usually post all that I'm working on and reading on Twitter. So that would be the easiest. I also have a blog. Um, if you just Google my name, Anzetsa Ware, it will come up and all of my writing and media appearances, including this podcast. Uh, are on there, so thank you
1: and of course uh, your column in Business Daily Africa as well so uh, and, and you 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 don't just write about China Africa obviously no. you write a lot, of, a lot of Kenyan and African issues, China Africa just pops up periodically.
3: Quite a bit yeah and, and especially around Focac I've been doing a lot of commentary on China Africa and I'm just finding even now there's a lot more appetite uh, from African analysts on Sino-African on relations and that's why I like your podcast is that you really bring in a lot of African analysts and I have criticized some Western media that is Instead of asking African analysts and economists these questions, they go to some foreign metropole to give the African position. So I am seeing a bit of a shift where Africans are being asked about what's going on in Africa, which is refreshing.
1: Well We are trying. We, we are <laughs> trying. We, we we encounter two problems, though, Kobus, you know, getting more African guests. One is connectivity and bandwidth, which is yeah. always very difficult in many parts of Africa. And two, we've extended a number of invitations to African guests and they don't show up.
3: Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sorry.
1: So that we need we need people to show up so if you want to be a guest on our show please let us know we're always looking for more african voices and more chinese voices incidentally as well yeah um so that is it is not always easy the it's a different problem in China because we're looking for people who could speak English uh, well enough that you can understand it on a podcast again not always something very easy and people who also don't necessarily toe the government line and that is a challenge as well so independent kind of thoughtful voices next week we will have one with Kai Xue for this week and Sensei yeah, yeah, thank, thank you, you so, so much for so joining well. us it was a fascinating discussion and we're, we're really proud to have you on the show again for a third time so really appreciate it
3: you're welcome thank you
1: My head is spinning after this discussion. Um, I I have to be honest with you. I don't know how I feel about this, because on the one hand, people hear me a lot say, well, if you're not going to get money from the Chinese, well, there's not many other places you're going to get money. But on the other hand, I hear what Nsetse is saying, and I love the fact that she is putting the burden squarely on the shoulders of the African government side of this. And this is a theme that you and I have been talking about for years, that it comes down to good governance. Remember we it, back in the sickle mines deal in the Congo this was uh, 2004, five, six, 7, 8, around those times and it was reported that 350 million dollars went from the Chinese into the pockets of Joseph Kabila incredible amounts of money and that corruption is is endemic in many parts of the continent and it's getting rid of that corruption which is critical and that's you know, he's pocketing money, not just from the Chinese, but from the French, from the Americans, from you name it. So that's not a China problem, as Nsetse pointed out. This is a Kenya problem, a Botswana problem. Actually, Botswana's not the best example because they're doing better than almost everybody. But this yeah, is a no, corruption they're, problem.
2: But they're better at corruption control as well,
1: Botswana. Yes. No, no. So that was that was uh, retract that one. Strike that from the record. Uh, but corruption is an endemic problem in many parts of Africa. That's a very, very safe statement. And I love how what she said, she's really persuaded me to think about this in a very different way now, that this is really if we're going to solve this problem, we have to start looking at in who the policymakers are and the decisions that they're making. And if the Chinese won't be transparent in their deals, that does not stop the African side from being so and from building trust with their own people that they're doing the deal properly and correctly.
2: I think the issue of trust between African governments and African publics is is really a key one because the one of the things that the debt trap narrative shows is that African publics have very very little trust in African governments so it's very easy to convince you know African publics that that they're being cheated by their own government um that there's some kind of some kind of corruption or some kind of hidden deal and the the, the opacity of the deal making just fuels that narrative you know people just start from a default position of suspicion simply because that is their their history and the fact that that the narratives are so closed and that the chinese are is are not saying anything and the african governments are not saying anything it just fuels this narrative you know kind of it it, so so one needs a, a lot more transparency but you also need not only good governance but you need you need good governance to be made visible um you know that people need to be convinced that the government's the governance is working and that is a, a, a very, like a double tall order um, especially in africa where you know where not only there isn't bad governance isn't the only problem there's also all kinds of systemic problems that that make it difficult to to get services delivered
1: Yeah, I I just I'm having a difficult time expressing myself, which doesn't happen very often on this issue, because, again, it is so complicated. There are there are sides on the Chinese points that I really, you know, take to heart. The fact that this is a big sacrifice uh, from Chinese taxpayers. I will tell you, people are nervous here about the economy. And I think a lot of Africans take Chinese money for granted. And that is not right. This is taxpayer money from the Chinese people. Um, who uh, who need it. There's 100 million more people here. I know a lot of people who disregard that and are very, very insensitive to the real social economic needs of, uh, in this country. And that shouldn't be disregarded. And that is real economic and political pressure for Xi Jinping. He was under pressure for this FOCAC. And I have a feeling in the next FOCAC that I think is going to happen in Senegal, uh, the numbers are going to be much, much smaller. And the Chinese are not going to do this anymore. The days of those big checkbooks are coming to an end. And uh, and I think we have to be aware of that. So what do you think about this? This is an issue that provokes a, a response on all sides and very, very strong emotions. Uh, we would love for you to join the conversation. Do you agree with Nsetse that the burden is all on the African side? and that transparency is what's needed to solve this. Do you agree with me that says a little bit that we have to be sensitive to the Chinese side here and the fact that taxpayer money is going out in large, large volumes and may be better used here at home in in China? Um, there's good points to be made on all sides here, so we'd love to hear from you. Uh, this is, by the way, one of the key issues that we cover in our weekly email newsletter that goes out every Monday. Kobus and I work on it over the weekend. We curate the best articles of the week. So if you're not following China-Africa news that closely in the course of the week, uh, as obsessively as we are, uh, this newsletter is just a great shortcut. So you'll get about five or six articles, you'll get a good quote, you'll get this podcast, and uh, it'll be delivered hot and fresh to your inbox every Monday. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast, and we're going to wrap up our post-folk hack analysis with Kai Xue from Beijing with a Chinese perspective. So until then, for Kobus Wenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening.
0: The discussion continues online head over to facebook.com slash china africa project to share your thoughts on today's show the guys are also on twitter where you can find quobus at stadinski or eric at eolander and be sure to sign up for the weekly china and africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com